For another perspective on management of breast cancer in the adjuvant and metastatic setting, I met with Ms. Ann O'Connor, a nurse cancer care coordinator. Ms. O'Connor began our conversation by focusing on perhaps the most important concern patients with breast cancer have in the adjuvant setting, whether chemotherapy will be recommended. When I first meet a woman who is coming for a medical oncology consultation, one of my first thoughts is, does this woman have any idea that she is going to need chemotherapy? Certainly there are many instances where it's a big decision of whether chemotherapy is needed in addition to hormone therapy, especially with the ERPR-positive tumor. So many women know that they're going to need some chemotherapy. Other women don't. And it's kind of really acknowledging that with them after a while, kind of being there with the physician, partnering with them, and expanding a woman's understanding of breast cancer as a disease, and also then giving her information on how the decision is made or how the recommendation is made as to whether chemotherapy is needed or not, both in terms of characteristics of tumor, size of tumor, her age, her menopausal status, her nodal status. And obviously now we have some additional things to help us with that decision in terms of the gene array testing that can be done in certain instances. Recently, there was a woman who was 55 years old. She had a one-centimeter tumor that was moderately differentiated. She was ERPR positive, HER2 negative. She had undergone a reexcision of the tumor with a sentinel node biopsy that was negative. And so she now came for consultation on what systemic therapy she may need. Now, what was her menopausal status? She was perimenopausal. So she was, what, having occasional periods? She had had periods within the last four months. She hadn't had one in the last two months. And what was her life situation? Her life situation was that she is married. She has two adult children that were in their early 20s. She was working full-time and she had a very demanding position in a private organization. She traveled a fair amount. She had no family history of breast cancer. She had no other medical conditions that had, this was kind of her first brush with something other than a routine screening for any medical conditions. Now, who, if anybody, came with her to that initial consultation? She came alone to that consultation. Does she have a spouse? She does have a spouse. How often do you see a patient come in like that for their first consultation who's married but doesn't come in with her spouse? I would say that I see that approximately 20% of the time. I can tell you from my experience over the years, and I think part of it is even location, geographic location. I live in a large urban setting. I think now with the amount of information that is available to women prior to seeing a physician through the internet and through many organizations, they feel a little more empowered and many of them have a fair amount of information before they come to see their physician. Now, when this woman showed up for her first visit, what kinds of information did she already have? What was her understanding before she started talking to you all? 
Her understanding was that there was a chance that somebody may give her a recommendation of chemotherapy. She came in saying, I know I need hormone therapy. And she was really reluctant to consider chemotherapy, but seemed very open to listen to the recommendations and engage in a discussion about it. What had she heard about chemotherapy and what concerns did she have about it? Like many other women, she had heard that it makes you sick. She had not had, one of the questions I frequently ask women is, have they had any experience with close family members or friends who have undergone therapy? And she had a couple of women friends that were not living close by to her, were colleagues that were in other cities that she knew had gone through chemotherapy. She knew she would lose her hair with the majority of chemotherapies that would be recommended to her. She had concerns about her ability to continue with her work life at the pace that it was presently at. She knew that fatigue was frequently a symptom that many women experience. So as she was assessed, what were the thoughts then about what kind of treatment she should get and specifically whether or not she should get chemotherapy in that situation? Well, given the fact that she was 55, she was perimenopausal, there was great, certainly, weight given to the fact that with her ERP or positive status, that hormone therapy would be a choice for her as initial adjuvant therapy. We certainly did talk about the fact she could get a slight benefit from additional therapy, such as chemotherapy, with four cycles of two drugs. And Part of that is kind of assessing where this woman is. From previous experience, I can say there's some women that want to have every treatment that is possible. They never want to feel that they could look back if it were to recur and say, if only, if only I'd taken the chemotherapy at that time. This was a woman who wasn't quite sure. She didn't feel that way, that she had to take chemotherapy. And we then discussed the fact that there would be this test, the Oncotype DX from Genomic Health, that might aid her and us in what recommendation to make. So she chose to have the test done. What was explained to her about what the Oncotype was? What was explained to her is that the Oncotype DX is a test that is a gene array examination from women who have had a breast cancer who have undergone treatment with five years of tamoxifen. So this was done retrospectively on the pathology specimens of women that we have information and knowledge because they have already been in clinical trials and we know their outcome. So a number of gene arrays have been identified and her particular pathological specimen can actually be examined to see how similar it is to the women whose specimens have been used to identify those gene arrays. And with that information, to be able to give an indication of what her outcome would be in approximately 10 years if she were to take five years of tamoxifen. How did she respond to that idea? She responded very positively. I think she was looking for some additional support to the idea of not taking chemotherapy. So what did the Oncotype show in this patient? The Oncotype showed a very low recurrence score. I I think it was approximately 5% at 10 years. 
So with that information in mind, she chose not to. And what kind of therapy did she receive? She was offered the opportunity to take what was recommended to her was a combination of two hormone agents to start out with tamoxifen. We didn't have a close indication that she was definitely postmenopausal at this time. So the recommendation at this time was to start out with tamoxifen for approximately two years and then to switch over to an aromatase inhibitor. Now, where is she right now in her therapy? She has just recently started her tamoxifen. And what did you talk to her about in terms of patient education related to her taking the tamoxifen? Well, there are many informational sources about the side effects of tamoxifen, and I gave her some patient information that we take from a website. We discussed the fact that this was a drug that had some very clear advantages to her as she's entering the menopause. It is a drug that helps drive calcium into bones so that there's a good chance that her DEXA scan would not decrease while she was on this drug in terms of her bone density. We talked about the fact that there certainly are side effects that can be disturbing to women, that it may increase her menopausal symptoms in terms of hot flashes. She could have mood changes. It has effects upon sexual activity. Some women experience some vaginal dryness. Others have vaginal discharge that at time can be somewhat bothersome. So we spoke to the fact that this could really make her menopausal status or her menopausal experience a little more. The symptoms could be increased in terms of intensity. And what did you advise her in terms of endometrial cancer and thrombosis? In terms of endometrial cancer, we suggested that she now see her gynecologist. If she hadn't seen her gynecologist in the last, you know, six months, have a gynecological exam, discuss with her gynecologist the fact that she would be on tamoxifen. There could be some thickening of the endometrial lining, that there was a very, very slight chance that women can develop uterine cancer as a result of taking tamoxifen, but the close gynecological screening and follow-up would be indicated with her taking this drug. In terms of thrombosis, we discussed with her family history, was there any close family members who had any coagulopathies or histories of any thrombosis that was negative. We described to her what she might experience if she were to develop spontaneously a deep vein thrombosis, what the symptoms of it were, of some swelling in her leg, pain, and that if she were to experience any of this, that she should call immediately. In terms of travel, we suggested that if she's taking long car rides, that she get out every couple of hours and walk around. Any plane travel, again, that she move around, do some leg aerobics and just make sure when she took plane rides that she move around. Now, you said that after a couple of years, she most likely will get switched to an aromatase inhibitor, assuming that she is menopausal at that point. Correct. What do you say to patients who are about to begin in AI? With those patients that are about to begin in AI, we talk to them about, again, the side effects. First of all, we would have a baseline DEXA scan done to assess their bone density at that time because there can be a chance that they're going to have bone thinning. And we also discuss with them taking adequate amounts of calcium and vitamin D 
just as any woman would at that point in their life, but that it is most important that they continue to do that and that we would have their DEXA scans depending on the results, but at least we would be monitoring them every two years, if not annually, depending on what the result of it would be. My experience has been that many women have experienced a fair amount of discomfort in their lower extremities or in leg aches when they go on an AI in comparison to women who have been on tamoxifen. There can be muscle aches and leg aches. We suggest that they take some ibuprofen if this is very discomforting and try and encourage them to get through the first couple of months when the majority of those symptoms then seem to diminish in terms of intensity. Overall, how do you find patients' quality life on an aromatase inhibitor compared to tamoxifen? I think the first couple of months are the most difficult for women on the aromatase inhibitors. Again, there's been some women that have complained about headaches, but again, I think it's more of the muscle aches. Some women find that it impacts on their ability to exercise or walk, that they feel a lot of discomfort. One of the things that's becoming a little bit controversial in hormonal therapy is how long to use the aromatase inhibitors. I guess tamoxifen we use for five years, and we don't really know the optimal duration with the aromatase inhibitors. How do you approach those patients who come up to their five-year point with the aromatase inhibitors? At this point, we discontinue women after five years on their aromatase inhibitor. We don't continue them in To my knowledge, there hasn't been studies that have definitely proven that there is a reason to continue them beyond the five years. I think there's probably some studies that are in the works, but we do not continue women after five years. Getting back to the issue of oncotype, how do you see that affecting the clinical practice in terms of adjuvant therapy? What kind of effect has it had on what you're doing? Well, I think it's an aid in helping us make recommendations to women as well as for women to have some additional information that helps them decide whether to have adjuvant chemotherapy. Let's talk a little bit about how you all are approaching adjuvant therapy, the patient with a HER2 positive tumor and the use of trastuzumab or Herceptin. How do you approach those patients? For women who have a HER2-positive tumor in the adjuvant setting, if they have node-positive disease, we would offer them the opportunity to have trastuzumab added to their adjuvant chemotherapy. And for the most part, we follow the guidelines of the studies that have come before in terms of having the taxane follow four cycles of the adriamycin cytoxin. And the majority of women that have node-positive disease, it's been my experience that they've been very willing to go on and take the Herceptin. I've had a number of women who have, during that period of time, their cardiac status has changed, and we have had to stop the trastuzumab for some period of time and await a recovery of their cardiac function. How do you monitor their cardiac function while they're getting trastuzumab? We monitor it with a MUGA scan. We initially do it after they've had their anthracycline-based chemotherapy. They would get an additional one before starting the Herceptin, and then we monitor it about every three months after that. And how do you find women responding to taking that full year of trastuzumab? Do you find it gets to be difficult after a while, or are they able to get through it? 
The majority of women are able to get through it. They see this as a real advantage to them. Most of those women, especially with node-positive disease, are willing to take this and have kind of integrated it into their life. Those that have had an issue with cardiac status changes, I think they continue to be somewhat tense about the long-term effects of it, and they really await each one of those MUGA scans almost as a person awaits what the next mammogram is going to show. But I've had a woman recently who has had to delay her Herceptin initially after her chemotherapy for approximately two months. But she was absolutely determined to be able to restart the trastuzumab. She saw this as her best chance of not having her cancer recur. Now, some of these patients have tumors that are both estrogen receptor positive as well as HER2 positive, and those patients are getting both trastuzumab and hormonal therapy together. They are. How do you find them tolerating that? They seem to tolerate that fairly well. That doesn't seem to add a lot to any kind of a toxicity profile. Now, I asked you about the issue of getting through the year of the trastuzumab. What about getting through the five years of hormonal therapy? What do you think the compliance or adherence is in these patients? You know, that's an interesting question. I think there's been some recent information that spoke to the fact that many women aren't complying and taking the tamoxifen on a daily basis. And I have to tell you that when I read about that recently, it really changed my practice. I find myself asking women, are you taking your tamoxifen every day? I guess I kind of thought that was a given, and I find that now I'm really curious to see how many women are actually able to tell me that they do. And the majority of the women do. There are others that say, well, I miss every once in a while. And certainly, even in my practice before that was commented on, there were women that called and said, I ran out of my tamoxifen about a month ago. Can you get me a refill? So I think prior to having the aromatase inhibitors to add to the adjuvant therapy, I can tell you that I had a number of women who I followed who were very distressed at having their tamoxifen five years because they just felt like they were taking something every day that protected them against recurrence. And many of those women really celebrated the fact that here was yet another drug. If they're tolerating it fairly well, they just feel like, what now is going to protect me if you don't have something else to offer them? How do you find women tolerating adjuvant chemotherapy, and what's the typical lifestyle that you see people having during adjuvant chemotherapy? The practice that I am presently involved with is in an urban setting. We have many middle-aged women active in their careers, and I see them for the most part, really being able to continue with their career, continue with their daily work. And I really counsel them to try and get some flexibility. Many of them work in the government here in Washington, D.C., and they can take advantage of having some telecommuting in their positions. There are others that can flex their days so that they can take off a couple of days shortly after receiving treatment. What I do find is that there certainly is fatigue, no matter how much we try and control the symptoms and have certainly an arsenal of anti-nausea drugs right now that are most effective. Women continue to have a fatigue symptom that many times just increases as the chemotherapy continues. And 
that can be very difficult. Sometimes it's related to their hematocrit and hemoglobin, and they have developed some anemia, but there's much fatigue that is unrelated to that at all. I think most women that I see, I have very few women that would go to work the following day, or at least I tell them not to have a schedule where they have to meet with people or have extensive interviews or appointments, but if they could have a day that either they can work at home or until they are feeling a little better, at least have an idea of what their individual response to this is going to be. Much of what I find myself dealing with are some of the side effects of the drugs that we give to decrease the nausea and the vomiting. There are results of the 5-HT3s many women find if they have any propensity towards GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, that they have increasing symptoms with that. Women who may have a tendency towards constipation find themselves constipated while taking these drugs. The low-dose steroids that we use to enhance the efficacy of the anti-nausea drugs, for some women there is no side effect, and for others they find themselves being unable to sleep or just not feeling like they can attain a relaxed state in a very easy way. How long does that usually last? How many nights are they not able to sleep usually? The sleep, for most women, it tends to be during the time they are taking the low-dose decodron. And in our standard of care, we tend to have them take it for two to three days post-chemotherapy. And then they can gradually get sleep. But I think there's a whole complex issue that goes on with the disease, the illness itself, what it means to them in their life, the side effect that going through the chemotherapy And many times they're either going into menopause or this is pushing them into the menopause. And that's dated in itself. Many women going through treatments such as this have sleep problems. How long does it take for women to sort of get back to normal feeling after getting adjuvant chemotherapy normally? My advice to women is it is most likely going to take you as long as you have been on treatment. We celebrate when they finished their four cycles or eight cycles or whatever number they're on, but I really caution women to expect to feel recovered from that for at least a couple of months. Additionally, many of these women are going on to have radiation therapy that certainly has different side effects, but again, it's something they have to engage in for the most part every day for six weeks, so that's going to add to it. So I really caution women, many times I tell them it's going to take them six months after their therapy is completed to feel like they're kind of getting back to themselves. Again, I would point out to fatigue as being the most lingering symptom that women continue to experience post-therapy. Let's talk a little bit about the management of metastatic disease. And first, I guess, if you could comment a little bit on the psychologic and emotional reaction that you observe. I think that's a very difficult time for women. It's such a disappointment to know that your cancer has come back. And again, there's obviously an individual response. Some women just feel very much like their life is over, the life as they knew it is over, but they feel so disappointed and most women are very sad. I think that's where I feel my position and my role is to really help them have an understanding of this and to really give them some very concrete examples of other women that I follow who have metastasis in multiple sites and are living a very good life. And it's going on for some period of time, years. 
with disease in their lung, their liver, and their bones. So I tried to give them an example. One of the nurses that used to work with me right in the center was somebody who had metastatic breast cancer. I never identified her as a person, but I would be able to tell women, you know, there's a nurse out there that you see every time you come. She looks like me. She works side by side with me. You wouldn't know that, but she has metastatic breast cancer, and I think that kind of opened their eyes to the fact that life can go on after that. Another hurdle for women is trying to have an idea that you've coached them through a period of treatment where you give them calendars and you tell them how long it's going to take to get through. And now you're telling them we want to start some therapy and they want to know how long they have to take it. And it's hard to say, well, we're going to start this and we're going to see how it works. And the reality is they're going to be on some form of therapy for the rest of their life. And that in itself is hard to take in and feel like that's something positive. For women who have had a difficult time with their adjuvant chemotherapy, this, I think, is the most difficult time for them. But we also then have the opportunity for women who are ERPR positive to give them therapies that aren't going to initially, you know, have them lose their hair or things such as this. So depending on a lot of pieces of the metastatic sites, their age, and other things, they can be offered a hormonal therapy that can be very effective. What are some of the questions that women ask you in that situation of being first diagnosed with metastatic disease? They ask how long do they have? What is my life going to be like? They certainly ask about their prognosis, and that's when I think I have an opportunity to tell them that it's difficult to give them any kind of a clear-cut idea, but we have so many different and new drugs and agents coming on the market or those that are on the market that we have many things that we can use with them. And now we have some way of truly measuring how they're doing. We will follow them closely. We will restage them after a period of time, most of the time, three cycles or three months, depending on what kind of a regimen they are on, and that if whatever is recommended now isn't working, we have something else, and that many of them are things that they will be able to tolerate in a good way. That our goal is really to keep their life going with a good quality of life for as long as we can. What about the use of chemotherapy and metastatic disease? What is the sort of overall strategy that you take in that situation? Well, the strategy that I take in terms of educating them, is that what you're referring mm-hmm, to? Right. Again, it's that we want to control their symptoms. We want them to have a good quality of life, especially if this is somebody who was node negative and did not receive a taxane and we were going to a taxane. I really tried to tell them that if they had a difficult time with GI symptoms from their initial adjuvant chemotherapy, that this is a group of drugs that we find does not have that kind of toxicity profile in the majority of women. They are easily tolerated in terms of GI toxicity. They're easier on your blood counts than on anthracycline-based chemotherapy. So from that perspective, I think that their quality of life will be better. We then certainly monitor them for the neuropathies that they may experience. And if they're not experiencing much in the way of peripheral neuropathy, it's a very tolerable group of drugs. Also, it's been my experience that the toxicity profile is diminished when we're giving drugs on a more frequent basis. So giving 
paclitaxel on a weekly basis is a lot easier on women than giving it to them every three weeks in terms of the toxicities they experience. I feel like the treatment for breast cancer is in a much more positive state than it was a few years ago, and I think our goal continues to help women feel good for as long as we can, and we have many more things and ways we can do that, not only with the drugs to actually treat their cancers, but the drugs to help with the toxicities.